Well, the Canucks salvaged a point against Anaheim, but they cannot salvage their seven-game homestand. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, who of course also covers the team for The Athletic. Make sure you're checking his work out there. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, there is a ton to get into with the Vancouver Canucks today following last night's 3-2 overtime loss against Anaheim that wrapped up a seven-game homestand. I want to hear from the listeners as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar-Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. But, Drancer, before we get into the hockey and what happened last night on the ice, look ahead to the road trip, all of that with the Vancouver Canucks, I do think we have to start the show by talking about and addressing something that actually happened uh, throughout the course of the game broadcast last night, and specifically on the post-game show when our colleagues, my friends, your friends, Sat and Bick, uh, we're doing the post game show as they regularly do, and if you 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 might have seen this on Twitter. If you're not on social media, I'll just give you a quick summary of it. Basically, first in the text message inbox, and then actually from somebody calling in multiple times from different numbers, Sat and Bick were targeted for a whole bunch of racist abuse. Basically, is the is the way I can sum it up. And I'm not going to repeat what the person had to say or the people had to say. I don't want to give it that kind of airtime, but just being targeted with with racist harassment in the course of doing their job in the course of covering the Canucks and and Drancer you know we were just talking before the show and when I see something like that my first reaction of course is you know concern for Sat and Bick as friends as teammates as colleagues concern for you know other people of color who might have been listening to the broadcast and what they might have felt and after that for me I think the thing that best describes is just anger like anger but that's happening not just to people I like, but to anybody. Anger that it's happening in our community, which so many of us take pride in the diversity in our community. And it, it's just, it's, and I know, again, I, I'm not I'm not the victim here, but in a sense, the entire community is injured at, at, when something like this happens. It's an insult to everyone who who lives in Vancouver and, and is a Canucks fan. And it's just, again, I wanted to start off the show by addressing it, by expressing support for Sat and Bick, and just kind of airing it out, because it really is, it's infuriating for me at the end of the day. Bick and Sat are the best, and that's besides the point. No one should be targeted in that manner. Um, You know, we we often say there's no wrong way to be a fan, but there is. Yes. That way. That's the wrong way to be a fan. I mean, just completely intolerable, completely unacceptable, disgusting. And, you know, I, I think it's important that we address this off the top because this fan base, this city, um, you know, part of what makes it so fun, part of what makes it so vibrant, part of, uh, it, in fact, exactly what makes it what it is, is, you know, the, the, the variety of different types of people, the variety of different types yeah. of perspectives. Um, if you can't appreciate that, I, I feel truly sorry for you. Um, but, you know, no sympathy in this case. Um, just... Just judge people on their merits, man. Yeah. Just terrible. And, you know, I'll, I'll also say one of the one of the big reasons that I've been proud to work at Sportsnet 650 over the last, you know, three and a half years or so is that 
this station has always made an effort to, you know, with the people working here to kind of reflect the diversity of the community. Mm-hmm. And Sat and Bic are, are, the, are great examples of that. And I'm not saying we've been perfect in that regard by any stretch, but there has been a real commitment to diversity and, and to finding, you know, d- different voices and new voices. And, and as I said, reflecting what the community here in Vancouver looks like. And it's, you know, that's something that I take a lot of pride in. I know everyone here at 650 takes a lot of pride in that. And to see it kind of subjected to just the ridiculous behavior last night is frustrating because it should, it, it is a strength. And I, and I just, I wish that everybody viewed it as such. And it's always disheartening when you get a reminder of the attitudes that still exist out there. Yeah. No, it's uh, truly awful. Like, truly awful. Uh, Bacon Sad are the best. And, and you know, this space, this community of people who discuss the Canucks, whether you're listening on radio, whether you're watching Shorty and, and Cheech from home, um, you know, whether you're tweeting at us, whether yeah. you're texting into the Dunbar at Lumber inbox, uh, regardless, like, this community thrives in part because it's a collective experience supporting this team is a collective experience it's often a negative experience let's be real especially <laughs> yes. with the with the outcomes but the collective experience itself uh engaging with your community i mean that part's fun and it should be fun for everybody and we all have an obligation i think to not just not be racist but be anti-racist yes. and when it happens you know like like i was really glad that it got called out you know what i mean that our colleagues called it out yeah and i think it's important that we express you know, to begin this show, right? Just the fact that we have no tolerance for it, right? That we stand with our colleagues a hundred percent of the time, and that we hope, uh, you know, that we hope that if you choose to engage with the Canucks Hour, we hope you do. But we hope if you choose to engage in the Canucks Hour, that you agree with us and definitely never bring any of those types yep. of attitudes to your engagement with this show. We will get, grant it no quarter. Yeah, no, it's it has no place here. If if that's what you're interested in, just go ahead and turn the radio off. I'm fine. I'm fine with losing that because it's just it's completely infuriating. And as I said, has absolutely no place in our society, in our radio program, in the community of Canucks fans. And I, I know Sat and Bick do appreciate all the support that they've received from listeners, from colleagues on social media and everywhere. And We'll move on now, but I, I did want to just come on the show because, as you said, Drancer, when something like that happens, it's important to acknowledge it. It's important to identify why it's wrong. And again, our um, you know my thoughts first and foremost are with are, are with our colleagues Satinbeck, and I'm really proud of of the work they do and and the way they've handled this specifically as well. All right, amen. We're going to move on to hockey now. Never never easy to move on from something like that, but this is the Canucks Hour. And we are going to talk about the Vancouver Canucks. There was a game last night. They lost 3-2 in overtime. Got pretty exciting towards the end of the third period there. And you felt like, oh my, when Elias Pettersson scores that shorthanded goal of all things uh, to tie the game up late in the third period, it felt like the Canucks had a possibility to, you know, get a really kind of heartening win. And instead it ended in a very deflating manner with the Canucks getting the overtime or with the Ducks getting the overtime winner. Yeah. And I mean, they had multiple breakaways, uh, tons of great chances. They were the better team three on three. I loved the play by Elias Pettersson to spring Bo Horvat, actually pretty reminiscent of the play he made to spring JT Miller, right? Like, do you remember when Alonzo Mourning came in and started blocking shots to key the fast break in the NBA and no one had ever seen that before? Pettersson's doing that at three on three now. I love it. Um, I loved that play. I, I actually loved the Canucks' first 40 minutes, but especially their first period. 
I thought that was the best first period they've had. They came out, they set the tone. That Horvat line had an 80-second shift, ends in a Ducks icing. That's how the Canucks start the game. What a, what a nice statement of yep. intent. That That's the type of start that you need to have at home somewhat consistently if you're going to make Rogers Arena a fortress. I love that. And, you know, there was a lot to like. I didn't love their third period. Like, yeah. as much as we sort of can look at like I was thinking after 40 minutes I was like this feels like a game they're gonna lose Gibson's so on they've been so good this feels like the Detroit game like this feels like a game they're gonna lose and it feels like a game they're gonna lose and that I'm going to be like ah you know I actually take more positives out of they that they weren't that than, bad yeah, yeah. Uh, it felt like one of those games where they were probably gonna lose but they were on the precipice of a breakthrough you sometimes see that like a team has a really good game but the the results just haven't quite caught up to the process yet. Yep. They lose like five nothing, and then they reel off eight of nine or something like that, right? Like th- there's these there's these this sort of game that I look for early in the season um, that sort of matches that description through forty minutes. Now in the last twenty, I didn't think the Canucks were generating very much. I, d- I just didn't think they had the same pickup. And then you know I think the injustice of the Halak tripping penalty, <laughs> uh, you know, an abysmal call, yes, right? An abysmal call. Yeah, I- I've watched Brad Meyer referee a lot of games. I think I actually think Brad Meyer's a pretty good referee. Typically speaking, um, he's not among the names that I'll like read as is refereeing a game and yeah. like roll my eyes. Yeah. Which, by the way, is its own issue, which we can unpack later. I feel bad. Every other league makes referees or officials available post game. You know, or like, yep. or or at least puts or just out a the statement, report, yeah, the, report, the, the two the minute NBA report in the yeah. NBA, yeah, for sure. But every other league has some form of way for an official to be like, "My bad, hand up." You know, I I, I blew that call. Like, it's a it's a fast game. You you know, it's not easy to get it right a hundred percent of the time. And I'm I'm not in favor of adding video review more video review than we have um, already in the NHL. But it, I feel bad for him that he can't take that moment. That it's like Travis Green who has to come out and say, "Oh, Brad Meyer apologized to me." Right. You know, like just just let a guy own that he missed it. You know that he flubbed it. I, I think that would help the overall credibility. Anyway, I feel like that Pedersen goal was justice. Like that, that like restored yeah. some energy to the Canucks. They were they were all of a sudden a righteous team. Um, you know. As I look at that game, though, overall, I still don't love the quality that Vancouver's generating five-on-five. My concerns about the lotto line remain. Um, We once again saw Myers, OEL, and Hughes play a ton, and everyone else play third-pair minutes. So this team is still short a top-four defender and is about to lose Travis Hamanick. And lastly, you know, I I do kind of think the fourth-line issues are back. Oh, yeah. So uh, that's sort of like a big recap answer, and we'll and we can pick it sort of parts of that as we uh, as we go forward here on this hour. Yeah, we'll we'll dig into all of that. And I, I'll just say overall, you know, again, we keep coming back to when you dig yourself even a little bit of a hole early. And look, the Canucks are two points out of a playoff spot, right? So yeah, the points percentage is not where you want it, but we don't want to act like the season is lost or anything. But even when you get into that position, it, it makes nights like that sting so much more, right? If if Calgary loses a game like that that you shrug and move on you know hey we played pretty well we got it to overtime we salvaged a point ah we lost on yeah, three manager three. losses what are you gonna do <laughs> yeah. and you move on when the Canucks lose a game like that at the as the final game of that homestand it hurts a lot more right because oh man we rallied we were there we had a chance to get the two points and you count you come up short and it, again when you're already I don't want to say behind the eight ball entirely but when you're already kind of behind a little bit and you feel like you have to make up ground and really bend that points percentage up 
uh, it stings in that game. Let's talk about the lotto line first and foremost here. Uh, and 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep keep your thoughts coming in because you know you mentioned it right off the start of the game. Strong shift, and I thought all three line the the three top lines kind of took turns having really strong shifts to top to start the game, which was encouraging. I thought early there were a lot of signs of progress from the lotto line. They mm-hmm. they had a little bit more of that confidence and that swagger back, but just like with the team, it, it, they didn't they weren't able to sustain it for the entire sixty minutes of the game, right? It, and it didn't it didn't from those positive signs early it didn't coalesce into a statement game or a dominant game for them there were signs but they didn't develop into anything more than that they were just signs at the end of the day yeah for sure i I mean you know mel gibson and his kids in the movie signs in the basement right like wearing tinfoil hats and figure waiting till the end to figure out that water is the way to kill the aliens i mean the fact is that we've been looking for signs with this line for 10 games Certainly, certainly this entire homestand. Yep. And, you know, at the end of the day, they, you know, I, I know what you're saying about they had some early shifts that were, that were solid, right? There were, there were some moments like some Brock Besser passes, some like handoffs, some, some action, some high low passes, some high low movement that, you know, looked familiar, looked like the intricate type of cycle game that the lotto line is able to play and execute when they're on. And yet, like, where were the chances that were, analogous to the types of chances that Connor Garland was generating right. or that Bo Horvat and Nils Hoaglander and Tanner Pearson were generating. Like the standard has to be higher for this line, I think, because there hasn't been enough bottom line to it. Like there just hasn't, right? They're they're just not you know, you you look over this trip or or sorry, you look over this homestand and look at the goal differential and it's like the Canucks just didn't outscore their opponent at all. With their top line on the ice, you know, like with Bo Horvat over the course of the homestand, they're plus three. Uh, with P- Pod Colson and Garland, they're you know plus one. Like they're outscoring opponents, which you need to do. The lotto line, there's just not enough going on. Like there's not enough going on, and there's too many goals against going in, which we saw again. They were they, they were the line on the ice for that pretty unlucky, and yeah. in fact missed in real time. Yeah. second Ducks goal. So you know. I, I just kind of look at it and think this is the line, like this top nine. If you're going to look for positives, right? If you're going to take what's your big positive from this Canucks homestand in which they gathered five of a possible 14 points. Like if you want to be that guy, right? The main positive you got to take is the Canucks have two middle six lines yes. that are now demolishing. Clicking. Like de- yeah. no, more than clicking. Yeah. That Horvat pearson Hoaglander line is laying waste to their opposition every time they hop over the boards. Garland and Pod Colson, that's, that that has a chance to be the most dynamic third line that the Canucks have iced since uh, Cassian Richardson, Sean Matthias. Wow, <laughs> that line was really good in 2014-15. No, but I mean, I, I can't even think of honestly, like, I, and I, I'm joking with that comparison, but I can't even think of a Canucks third line with that level of firepower on it in my lifetime. They've to been be totally honest with you. They've been searching for one for years. Right, yeah. and they've been searching for a third line for any semblance of a reliable, consistent third line that yeah. you don't have to shelter, that you're not scared to put out there. They've been searching for yeah. that. For How about years. one with an elite offensive player on it? Yeah, because that's what Connor Garland is. So, yeah, I mean, incredible. But if the top line doesn't make account, if the top line's not generating the types of zone time you need, the types of goal differential you need, like you're, you're, those lines are behind the eight ball already. And and here's the other thing I'd note to you. When the Canucks were trailing, right, it was interesting because after seeing that Dallas game 
where the Canucks were holding a lead and they were doing some different things that we maybe hadn't seen before, we got a chance to see the other side of the coin really quickly. Now that this lineup seems relatively settled and, and it's got a couple forward lines going, we got to see them trail. And what did they do? They bumped Horvat to play with Pod Colson yep. and Garland an awful lot. Makes sense. Pod Colson and Garland have more offensive pop than Hoaglander and Pearson. So all of a sudden you understand that you know, that's sort of your second line configuration. It's just that the three of them don't always play together, right? Like, yep. that makes sense to me. If the lotto line was clicking, if this club felt comfortable playing and splitting Miller from Pedersen, you could have done all this different stuff to, like, double shift all three of those guys, Horvat, Pedersen, Miller, and it doesn't feel like the Canucks are comfortable doing it. So instead you're having, you're separating what's your best forward line, Pearson, Horvat, and Hoaglander, to give some extra juice to Pod Colson and Garland, and then you've got Dickinson playing with Hoaglander and Pearson, and there's just not a ton of threat there. And all of a sudden, you know, wh- why do the Canucks not have a, as good a third period? It's probably because they separated Horvat, Hoaglander, and Pearson, honestly. Right. And yet, and yet, I can't quibble with the decision making. I'm not. I'm not even being critical. It makes sense that you try to maximize the six best offensive players you have off uh, ice time in that situation. But it, it didn't really work, and, and I do sort of feel like that's another one of those knock-on effects, trickle-down effects from the lotto line just kind of not having their punch. Yeah, and, uh, okay, just digging in a little bit more to the lotto line, and this has been the case for a few games now where the the kind of underlying numbers look pretty good, right? Like in 10 minutes yesterday, shot attempts, 83% they controlled, expected goals, 84%. But if you look at the expected goals number in particular – it's more about the fact that they were limiting Anaheim than that they were really generating a ton. Like, you ex- you extrapolate what they were doing in terms of scoring chances, and it would still be, you know, over over a, on a per 60 rate, it would be less than Anaheim normally gives up, right? We talked about it on the show yesterday. Anaheim at 5-on-5, five five, they give up a fair number of scoring chances, right? And so the lotto line, they controlled the expect their, – their share of expected goals was strong against Anaheim, but what they were generating – going forward wasn't particularly strong, right? It was more, their their strong number was more about the fact that they were limiting Anaheim. And ultimately, like, that's great, but you're not asking that team to play to a draw, right? This is not a a defensive third line where you're saying, hey, if you guys break even and shut down the other team, we feel good about that. You need them to find a way to more consistently generate chances. And again, signs of progress, but they need it to be consistent, not just game to game, but within a game as well, through all three periods at some point. I, I do want to just zero in quickly on the Bo Horvat, Connor Garland, Vasily Podkolzin line. They got about five minutes together. They yep. were fantastic. And part yep. of that is score effects. It's late in the game. You're at home. You're chasing the game. You're naturally going to have more of, the, more of the puck. But they looked really, really good together. They looked great. They, I mean, they should be, right? Like, that's three really good players. And, yeah, no, I mean, they generated a ton. You're right. They were excellent. But so were... Nils, Horvat, yep. and Pearson. I mean, and that line, I just think that line needs to be, that's your first line. Like, at the end of right the day, now. right now, that's your first line. So, you know, um, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic. I just I just overall think that the form that I saw from the lotto line, and, and, you know, I know as a trio they played really well, but Pedersen ends up underwater by expected goals uh, individually despite that line's success five on five, right? Yep. So it's, I mean, it was just an interesting, it was an interesting game. I didn't feel overall like Vancouver's run of play translated into as many 
high danger chances as you'd want to see, especially yep. as the game went on. I don't think that was true in the first half. I think it was true in the second half, specifically that third period. But, you know, nice rally to get that point. Like, to get th- that point against Gibson, I think does matter. I think mattered a lot, in fact. Um, but, you know, they have put themselves behind the eight ball. And as we've discussed, like, Colorado, Vegas, and Anaheim 22 hours after the Vegas puck drop is a really tough run of games. And, and if you don't come back from this trip with something meaningful, uh, you're you're really in trouble. And, and if you're going to come back with something meaningful, like, it's got to be your best players at five-on-five five carrying you. The shape of that game last night and the kind of the emotion it leaves you with, it feels a little bit like the Canucks season overall to me, right? Where they salvage that road trip. Okay, hey, seven points in six games on the road trip. Hey, that's pretty good. And then they don't pay it off at home, right? And that and that's that seems to me like, oh, hey, you 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 overcame a two goal deficit against John Gibson in the third period. That's pretty good. You got it to overtime, but they didn't pay it off with the full two points. And that's understandably very frustrating given where this team is. Okay, we talked about some of the the positive signs, not so positive with the lotto line, but positive from other uh, areas on the forward group. We do have to talk about the fourth line. That that was a that stood out as an issue, a major issue for the Canucks to me. And that unit had. All had under five minutes of ice time last night, and when they were on the ice, they were not good. They were strongly outperformed by Anaheim. Kitty bar the door. Um, Yeah. No, it was uh, a tough run. Dowling, Lamico, Bailey, uh, you know, I I like Yuho Lamico's work rate, but I do think there's limitations. Um, you know, Bailey started really strong when he got back in the lineup. I don't know that he's maintained that form. And then, you know, Dowling's played well, I think, overall, but he didn't have a, a sparkling homestand on his return from injury, uh, in my mind anyway. He wasn't as good on this homestand as he was at times uh, on the season-opening road trip. Um, you know, are we at the point where are we at the point where you have to consider some different options, or are you at the point where you wait to see what it looks like when you get Mott and, you know, some other guys back? I mean, Mott, Mott principally, because that one appears to be on the horizon with him traveling with the team on this three-game road trip, um, you know, he'll help. He'll help for sure. Lamico, Mott, and whomever, yeah, that, I mean, that's probably useful. But probably I, Dowling, right? It, it, Bailey looks like the guy to come out at this point when Mott returns. You no, never especially, know. But. Especially now that he's kind of lost that PK spot. Yeah. I think the writing's on the wall there, unfortunately. Um, you know, but on the other hand, Mott, Lamico, Bailey gives you a lot of speed. You know, that might be a consideration. So, It'll be interesting to see exactly how they handle it. It's going to be, but yeah, they need more. Like they need more. There, there's way too much quad A depth in this organization right now. Like if you look down at Abbotsford and you see Phil DiGiuseppe yes. and Nick Patan there, and you know even like Sheldon Rample and uh, and Sheldon, sorry, Sheldon Dries and um, and Rample. Like there's enough guys who you have to be able to cobble together a, a league average fourth line out of the volume of bodies you signed for the benefit of the Abbotsford Canucks like you have to be able to do it well that's the whole reason you sign those guys yeah right it's not just in case of injury it's oh hey our fourth line's not working right now we have legit fourth liners playing in the AHL for us Phil DiGiuseppe I would think at some point has to get a look and it, it was, I was a little surprised when he didn't make the opening night roster to I be was honest shocked. because I thought he had a really strong training camp and preseason and I don't know how long when you have that kind of player and Nick Patan, you could throw into that category a little bit as well. Like I get waiting for Tyler Mott, but well, and and I guess Highmore is would be the Highmore other thing the, the, other. the club would point to. But um, and I think Highmore is going to be a bit. So you know, I don't think I don't think Highmore's return is imminent. Um, but yeah, I mean Highmore, Lamico, Mott. 
does sound better than what they iced yep. last night, but nonetheless, wh- whoever's available, you have to be able to cobble together something that uh, a line that can perform a more regular shift than that, and ideally have a couple of guys who have some utility, whether that's moving up the lineup or helping out on special teams, right. like some more meaningful utility to help you win games. Otherwise, you don't have enough guys to help you win games. Yeah, otherwise you're back to the problem the Canucks have had so much of in recent years where there's this kind of massive gulf between the top end of your roster and the bottom end of your roster. Now, it used to be with the Canucks, it was the top two lines, and then the top, the, the bottom two lines were kind of just a mess, night in, night out. With, with the third line clicking for the Canucks, that's not really the case. But still, like your fourth line doesn't need to be, they don't need to be world beaters. But if you're playing them three, four minutes a night, that's just not, that's not sustainable over the course of an 82-game season. I look at Patan, I look at DiGiuseppe, you sign those guys for a reason, right? Yeah. They're here for a reason. You don't need to give... Lamico, Dowling, and Bailey this long runway to try to figure it out. You no. have other options. Well, and I'm Use sure they try won't. it. No. I'm sure they won't, right? But the but I agree with you. I mean, you do need to find a solution there. It's not perhaps as high leverage as the other issues ailing this team. Like the fact that I think, you know, when we've talked about this a bit, I talked a little bit about what I saw in terms of a trend with a top three among the defensemen. Yep. Really super pronounced last night, right? Where five on five minutes, you had Quinn Hughes at 19.07, Tyler Myers at 18.10, Ekman Larson at 15.52, and then everyone else of, on the defense core was between 12.19 and 13.49. So it's like between 90 seconds, a 90 second yeah. band for the bottom three. That So on the one hand, the Canucks have three defensemen who played really well last night and are performing really well overall this season. That's yeah. the good news. The bad news is is that there are defensemen short of a top four, yep. and and as we know, Hamannick now confirmed to not be going on this road trip. I you know we'll, we'll see if he goes on the next one. I, I I'm sort of skeptical that he'll be available for the start of that trip, and so you know you lose Hamannick from this lineup. The club called up Jack Rathbone today. Uh, that that could help. Jack Rathbone could help five on five. He could help this club generate, even though they've generated a little bit better of late. But now, now you're left in, like, don't you think losing Hamannick here and subbing in Rathbone creates a scenario where this already scuffling PK gets stressed out even further? Yeah, it certainly could. It's, it's, um, it's an, the the Canucks defense core is in a really fascinating place. As you said, the news today, Travis Hamannick loaned to Abbotsford won't be with the team on this uh, three-game trip to the United States. Jack Rathbone is called up. I want to, we got to get to break. I want to do a bit of more of a deep dive onto what that means for the Canucks blue line in the near future for the rest of the season and all of that. So we'll go to break here. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. We'll get to some of them after the break as well. Plus, more on this homestand on the blue line looking ahead to the road trip as well it's all coming up next it's the canucks hour here on sportsnet 650 Welcome back. It's the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance here with you. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And uh, Drancer, somehow, somehow, we, we went the whole first segment without talking about the Canucks penalty kill, which did give up a goal. 
last night, but also got some 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 important kills throughout the course of the game. And hey, Elise Pedersen scored the, uh, scored the shorty to tie the game up late. But the real real reason I wanted to bring it up is because we had this <laughs> unsigned text come in. It says, "Does Drancer have any terrible PK?" jokes for us today and i i uh if you follow drancer on twitter during the course of the game you they, saw they some, were bad some truly truly terrible i thought the pk, PK related puns good. i thought the pk blinders one was good yeah i, I saw i saw you getting some love for that one i, I, like, I don't know about this I, I also thought the tampering with a pk one was pretty good personally i thought that was pretty good um, that one that one was probably the best <laughs> I, I agree we're with talking you. about a low bar here. i agree with you that that one was the best but then patrick johnston um you know my my media colleague said that it wasn't so yeah i, I don't know i uh, um, i i gotta disagree with pj uh, you know I, i'm i'm not gonna do any pk puns but i will say that on this homestand on the whole right like there are care bears with more kills than the canucks had <laughs> in terms of their penalty killing effectiveness truly like I, what nine for fourteen over the last few games? They were they were ten goals against ten goals against in yeah. seven games. Um, shorthanded, ugly stuff. And it, then it's the story of the homestand, really. It here's the yeah. yeah. I mean, they were they the Canucks outscored their opposition nine seven at five on five on this homestand. Uh, they scored four power play goals, didn't give up a shorty, and they surrendered ten goals against shorthanded. That's it. That that undoes any good work that you had elsewhere. And especially as the homestand went along, I thought there was some decent work five-on-five, actually, especially from those middle two lines. But, yeah, you look at the Canucks' PK last night. What, they spend five minutes shorthanded. They end up getting a shorthanded goal, right? I mean, technically, um, it really was a five-on-five goal with with no goalie. But, you know, uh, I mean, honestly, it wasn't terrible. Like, it wasn't a terrible night for the penalty kill. They just had one go in. Well, and even the the goal that went in wasn't the kind of embarrassing, you know, cross-seam after cross-seam pass goal no, we've no. seen them allow, right? It was, oh, okay, that goal goes in sometimes. Yeah, it was you know? kind of a lucky one. Honestly, it was kind of a lucky yeah. one. It's I mean, like that, that, that's, why, that's why there's no 100% penalty kill in the league, right? Because goals like that go in when, they, when the team's on the power play. But, yeah, it was, it did, because it was the first one of the night and they put them down one nothing again, it felt... It, it felt magnified, but you're right. That was probably the penalty kill's best game uh, in quite some time. Did you notice Canucks. any slick Newell Brown drop passes? I'm like trying to think of one, yeah, I don't and think I did. Actually. I didn't either. I was like looking for it too. I was like so excited, um, and then uh, and then it just didn't happen. I was massively disappointing. I wonder what the reaction, if any, from the crowd. <laughs> None. None. The only person standing ovation for the for the drop pass. The only from the person crowd. in that building who was like, "Give me the drop," was me. <laughs> that was it. Uh, I got to get this text in. Matthew from Surrey. Uh, if the Canucks refuse to change their penalty kill strategy, they should call it Sex Panther because 60% of the time it works every time. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good pull, Matthew from Surrey. I enjoy that very much. Um, we mentioned it uh, just off just before we went to break. So the news from the Canucks, the roster news today, is that Travis Hamannick, because of his vaccination status, in the process of being fully vaccinated, uh, will not go on this road trip to the United States with the team. He has been loaned to Abbotsford, and Jack Rathbone has been called up. And just in the immediate future, what this means for the game tomorrow in Colorado, I expect that we will see Jack Rathbone and Kyle Burrows because, obviously, Travis Hamannick not available. Luke Shen is still week-to-week. Week. That's the latest update we've got from Travis Green, so he won't be an option. So... Brad Hunt would be the other guy who could potentially draw in, but the Canucks have not seemed in a hurry to get Brad Hunt much ice time. So I think not only will Jack Rathbone make the trip, I expect we see him on the ice for the Canucks tomorrow. 
it's either him or Brad Hunt. I mean, the Canucks are only going to have 7D with them for this road trip. Um, probably not too complicated because it ends on the West Coast. Like, your back-to-back situation is always what you're a little worried right. about in terms of actually managing a 23-man roster, right? Uh, you, you know, you don't want to have someone injured. Like, if you're in Utica, right, and you have someone injured in Vegas or two defensemen injured in a game, getting the guy out to, you know, Anaheim in time for a 5 p.m. Pacific puck drop can be a pain in the neck when they have to take a two-hour drive to the Syracuse airport, airport yeah. and then fly through O'Hare, you know, and, I mean, all you're one winter storm away. You're one delay at O'Hare away from playing with five defensemen, and you never want to be one O'Hare delay away <laughs> from anything. So, you know, the, uh, the the fact is is that now you're not so worried about carrying 7D in terms of, you know, having available bodies. But, look, if Rathbone plays, like, what what does this team need, right? What does this team need right now? Like, if there's two things that could help this team externally, like, that they don't have. A right-handed centerman and a lefty third-pair guy that kills penalties. Yeah. And Rathbone and Brad Hunt aren't going to kill penalties, right? And neither is Quinn Hughes. So that leaves the Canucks with four guys on this trip that they trust to kill penalties in any respect. Kyle Burrows, who's clearly going to play this entire trip. You know, Pullman, Myers, OEL. That's your four. If any of those guys take a penalty at any point, and we're talking about Tyler Myers here, so they're going to, <laughs> that means we're going to see a full two-minute PK shift. Well, or not, I mean, it's the Canucks, so a full 45 seconds before they surrender a goal PK shift from at least OEL. Like, at least OEL. Probably OEL and Pullman. Um, it's just, it's a thin line to be walking when this part of your game is already, you know, sputtering's like not even the right no, word, it's... right? It's like... It's like it's the, so far beyond the sputtering. fender has fallen off. Yeah. Like the, the 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 both rear view mirrors are like grinded off. Like the the car is collapsing. It's failing on the highway. Um, you are no, you're on you're on the side of the highway, like flagging down passerbys, hundred <laughs> percent, and like not even very well. Yeah. You know, like yeah. and it's like too foggy for them to see you. Like it's a bad scene, and this this does sort of limit the margin even further, um, which is tough. Now, l- some breaking news out of Colorado. Nathan McKinnon um, will miss three weeks. Coach Jared Bednar announced. Um, that's per my uh, athletic colleague, Peter Baugh. And so that, I mean, look, that gives the Canucks a boost. But make no mistake, the Avalanche, McKinnon obviously makes the Avalanche extra special. But that's still a special team without him. Still other good players on that team. Tons yeah. of tons of talent. And, and most importantly, a super mobile defense core that just creates a really dynamic offensive environment. So, um, you know. Is this, first of all, I never like to look at an injury as, like, good news for. Um, you know, hopefully McKinnon, one of the most scintillating players in the game, is back soon. Um, but, you know, don't don't overestimate the impact that this makes on the Avs as a formidable opponent. They're uh, still... Uh, an Avs team that is already well, playing well below their standard so far this year. That, that 400 yeah. point percentage? They're, they're, like, further out of the playoffs than the Canucks? Yes, have. they are. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, but but still, still, you know, um, just because Smog is sleeping on that pile of gold doesn't mean that he's not a dangerous You dragon. definitely don't take it lightly. Yeah. That's for sure. You yeah. don't treat it lightly. It's an opportunity. You have to look at it as an opportunity. And, and again, it's not – we never want to come on here and say, hey, good news. This player is injured, but – it's an opportunity. It's a break. Yeah. It's a break for you. You got to make your breaks count. Yeah, but don't whistle as you walk by the sleeping giant. <laughs> no, definitely, <laughs> definitely not. No, but it, it is. I mean, you look at it. Really, the the two two of the teams are playing on this little three game road trip. 
are in a similar position, right? Colorado and Vegas. We called them sleeping giants on the show yesterday. That, maybe that's a metaphor we should roll with. As you said, don't wake them up. Don't don't be the ones to wake them up. Just try to get out of there um, with as many points as you can. Is this – I mean, we don't know exactly where Travis Hamannick sits in terms of when he'll be available to make these, make these um, American trips road to the trips. States yeah. with the Canucks. But the problem you just outlined, until – Something changes, whether it's Hamannick status or, you know, if they all of a sudden decide that they trust one of their other players who's available on the penalty kill. The 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 kind of dilemma you laid out on defense that's going to be present for the foreseeable future for the Canucks. I I certainly think through much of this month, and th- and then you know one thing I I note too is I thought Travis Hamannick played really well last night. Like he was a standout for me um, in terms of his puck skills, mobility, um, which really is pretty well along like he looks he looks super comfortable in terms of his skating he actually you know I wouldn't say dynamic because he's never been a dynamic um you know offensive player but you know four waves mobility uh ability to preserve the cycle I thought I thought stood out he, he took some smart shots he got some shots through um like I don't think we're far away from Hamannick joining that big three as the Canucks's fourth top four yeah. defenseman um, but clearly it's going to take a little bit more time to ramp him up. And, and you know, complicating that is the fact that he's going to miss these next three games. And then the Canucks have a short homestand. And then it's not clear that he's going to start the next road trip with the club. Although, um, you know, I, I'm sure he'll finish it. So, um, you know, it, it's a little bit longer. It might be four or five games that they have a, a, an absence, like a Hammonick-related absence, um, over the balance this month. And, and I do think that, like, I think that hurts in a number of ways. But But one of the major ways is that, this club's probably going to be at its best when Hamannick can start playing 15 minutes a night because he's he's good. Like he's he's their best. He's their second he's, best option on the right side. He's their fourth best defenseman, right? Yeah. So is. and you know, I will be honest. You know, credit to Hamannick. I know you and I were concerned that the way he joined the team and the fact that he wasn't in training camp, he didn't get any preseason games, would kind of limit his usefulness. Yeah. Potentially for the rest of the season, I thought it would look a lot more like it did early last year. He's he's been he's got up to speed faster this year than he did last year. Way faster, much faster. Way I was faster. I was very worried. There was okay, we're in the exact same spot that this team was in last year with him, where you like the pairing in theory, but because of the the awkward way he joined the team, it's not going to get up to speed. Full credit to Hamannick. Whatever yeah. he was doing, he he's been up to speed a lot quicker this year. Yeah the uh, the eye test. You know, I'm a big eye test guy, and uh, and the eye test for me like. You know, I, I haven't seen Hamannick move this well since his early Calgary years. You know what I Honestly, yeah. like, even the 2019-20 season watching him, he didn't look this mobile. He didn't look this spry out there. Um, yeah, I've been actually really impressed, even though his minutes have been relatively prescribed and limited, and that's probably by design. Um, I still don't think – I still think the Canucks are going to end up in a, in a, in a big three situation. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's any doubt that Hamannick is – the the next guy and should probably be playing more minutes with Hughes. And, and even if you can, even if you have that big three situation, but the the drop off from three to four is not as extreme. Okay, it's it's it becomes a lot more manageable then, right? Because as you as you laid out earlier in the show, right now there's an extreme gap between what they're asking that top three to do and what they feel like they can trust the bottom three defensemen to do. Now this unsigned text comes in on the subject of defense. I thought that Burroughs was excellent. Chris Pass was a big hit that drew a slashing penalty. Excellent safe plays. 
Burroughs has been a nice player for them. He's he's been effective good in his role, but he's a depth player. He's ultimately not a guy you want to count on game in, game out. And the sooner they can get to okay, down the right side, it's gonna be, you know, Myers, Hamannick, Poolman, and Hamannick's in the top four. Poolman is in the bot on the bottom pairing, which is where his minutes are right now. Anyways, the sooner they can get to that, Hamannick playing with Hughes the better off this team is going to be. Because as you said, right now they're in this awkward kind of in-between stage where Hamannick's not always available. He's still getting up to speed. And what it's doing to the overall usage is just, just, it's not a clean fit right now on the blue line. No, it's not. Well, And especially because clearly they they are reducing Pullman's minutes, right? Clearly. And Pullman's effectiveness, by the way, has ticked up. His his results are better. That's usually what happens when, when he's you reduce minutes. When you right? when you when you get slotted appropriately, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, it's an interesting dynamic that they're working through on that back end, and and one that's going to be stressed out, I think, a little bit on this uh, on this three game trip. Um, you know, there's just no way around it, uh, really. But at least with their big three, bottom three formulation, for you know, it, it kind of hurts a little less than it would have if if Hamannick had already cemented himself with Hughes. Uh, but I do think that's coming, and and so if there's really sort of a big picture opportunity cost here, uh, you know, other than the fact that you're going to be putting your defensemen in really suboptimal positions four on five, yeah. which is already happening because they play on the Canucks PK. Yes, <laughs> frankly, by definition, suboptimal. Yeah. <laughs> by by definition, suboptimal. Um, you know, they uh, they also, you know, I, I think are going to miss on the like not miss, but. M- have a slower acceleration for getting Hamannick ramped up to where, you know, he probably should be. Overall, on this upcoming road trip, what are some of the things you're watching for? You know, we mentioned Nathan McKinnon out three weeks, so he won't feature for the Colorado Avalanche tomorrow. And I I, I never know how to look at teams in this situation, like Vegas, like Colorado. Now, Vegas has more injury problems, right, with, with more Mark issues. Stone, Max Pacioretty. So, they and man, Vegas's underlying William so far this year have been just abysmal yeah. from that team, which is the exact we're, we're used to seeing them dominate possession against virtually everyone, and it just hasn't been there for you, them. You don't even want to know, like, I don't even want to know. I'm not just saying you don't. Uh, I don't want to know what the conversation around Alex Pietrangelo would be like if he'd signed in Vancouver and been this bad over his first two campaigns. Like, it would be an ugly conversation in this market. Number one defenseman on Team Canada. Oh boy, oh boy. Well, Seth Jones is the number one defenseman on Team USA. You see, he's on pace now. Yeah, but like... they have Connor Hellebuck in net. Who do we have, Drancer? <laughs> Carter Hart. It's probably Carter Hart. He's been really good. Carter Hart's been really good. Canucks fans won't believe me because they only saw Carter Hart get lit up that one night. But he's been really good. Carter Hart and Jordan Biddington. That could. That's that's, no, that's trending. Can't have Jordan Biddington. He's playing well. Oh, I'm not. Look, I'm not. I don't. I don't relish the thought. But that's where we're headed. He's playing well. Does, is he wearing two blockers? <laughs> <laughs> guys, I, I just, I, guys always mad. But yeah, I mean, look, there's like the six goalies on the Canadian shortlist, right? And like none of them are good. Yes. One of them's like Mackenzie Blackwood, who yeah. hasn't played very well. No, it's not ideal. It's uh, it's a slightly less than ideal situation. Anyways, I don't want to get on. I could, uh, I could fret about well, Canada's goaltending I'm now situation. worried about it. I'm now worried about it, so I need to find out who these six names are. It's like Bob Essence, uh, 
<laughs> like it's uh, it's gonna be ugly. How's the long goes? How are long goes hips doing? <laughs> oh goodness! Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'd be Think more. Think he could play five games I'd for be, us? I'd be now that he's not burning four thousand calories a day. I'd be more worried about the waistline. <laughs> wow! All right. Uh, okay. Look, no, there there will be plenty of time uh, come February. Guy to, loves pizza. I'm not, me- I'm not and, being mean to like, fret and worry about Canada's goaltending situation at the Olympics, but. As we said, look, three-game road trip coming up here for the Canucks, and it feels like bare minimum, you know, four points. They have to find a way to get two wins on this trip. Yeah. Bare, bare minimum, just to stabilize, right? And ideally, you know, as we've talked about, your points percentage is already, you know, off the pace, well off the pace that you want it to be for the year. And at a certain point, it has to be – you can't just look for – you know, we were talking the final few games of this homestand. Okay, can you salvage a decent result, right? Going into this road trip, can you stabilize your season? It has to be, you have to be making up ground, not just treading water at some point, right? Like yep. stabilizing, salvaging, that's not good enough. That That's the first step, but you got to go beyond that and rattle off some wins. Have some really good results on a trip or a homestand at some point. For sure. For sure you do. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is what's, this is the problem about being on your heels, right? It's hard to get back on the front foot, especially in a division. Like, I, I don't know how much of this Kings win streak you've watched, but Alex Edler is not done, first of all. Yeah. And second of all, it's not just the kopitar Dano effect. Like, that Kings team moves the puck really well. They move the puck really sharply. They are going to be a tough opponent. In fact, I, I would qualify them as having the type of heavy skill. Like, we talk about Alex Burrows. Or, sorry, Alex Burrows. Kyle Burrows having a good like good run for the Canucks. Yeah. And he's been useful depth. But I wonder what he looks like when you start to encounter some of those heavy-skilled games a little bit later in the season, right? Like, that's sort of the question that he still has, has to answer. And I think the Kings are already at the point where they might be among those teams. Like, Usually when I say something like that, you would expect me to mean Vegas and Calgary. But I, I, I kind of I mean L.A. Like, L.A. looks good. I think the Kraken are going to stabilize once they get some goaltending. Chris Dreger being back is huge for them. So, you know, yeah, no, they need to, they need to start to rattle off some points for sure. They need to start winning games. I mean, two wins is bare minimum, bare minimum on this road trip, especially considering the hole they've dug themselves in over the past two weeks at home and and when you when you think about the opponents yes i know you you can talk yourself into okay vegas and colorado are struggling this is an opportunity it's still vegas and colorado you still feel a little nervous about expecting results on the road in those games by the way you know just talking about la and uh you said alex edler's not done one of the things uh, you said this team needs most early earlier this uh this show was a left-handed defenseman who can kill penalties (laughs) Uh, and then, you know, that's that's part of the problem. Like, that's part of the, dem- of the like, cumulative effect of the pandemic and how this organization handled it. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to escape the thought for me that considering how long-serving Edler was, considering how dedicated to living in the city and being part of this organization he was over the years, like, in a lot of situations, he signs back for one year at, Three yeah. or two, yeah, you know, and and is 2. like point five, whatever, and is yeah. like the perfect fit, you know, like the perfect fit for your third pair. Um, obviously, that didn't happen, and that, and that's sort of a byproduct. Like that's part of what happens when you just don't succeed for a long period of time, and then go through a season of upheaval as dramatic and difficult to be part of. 
as the 2021 season was for the Canucks. And the other thing is, you know, I can understand it in a vacuum, right? Okay, we have Rathbone, we have Yulevi still in the organization, we want to make way for these guys, it'll save, you know, it'll be more cap efficient, all of that, I, I get that, it's still... As you said, he's not done. He can play. He can help your team, and he's such a long-serving guy, and you let him go. And it reminds me a little bit of the Chris Tanev thing where, again, I, you know, I looked at that deal at the time and kind of said, okay, that you know, isn't this the kind of deal that we have been crushing the Canucks for signing, right? A guy who's getting up there on the aging curve. You don't know how efficient he's going to be throughout the course of the deal. I understand the reasons for letting some other team sign him to that contract, but you then have to – the next step of that is – finding an effective way to replace the player in the lineup. And I think too often that has been uh, an issue for the Canucks. Uh, A couple more texts, time for a couple more texts here before we sign off. We were talking about the fourth line earlier, Drancer, and uh, this this text came in. Send down Bailey, bring up Will Lockwood. Lockwood hit everyone in preseason, and he was also killing penalties. Think Will Lockwood gets some time here at some point for the Canucks this year? I think a healthy run of games at the AHL level needs to happen first. Probably the best spot for him. I, I, he needs to he needs to have a, a like a lengthy healthy run, and be successful because I mean you go look at the Abbotsford Canucks and how they've played, and this is an important thing to organizations. Typically, like their best players by far have been Sheldon Drees, right? Who's point, per, point basically point per game through yep. their first nine games, and uh, and um. Excuse me. His name is I called him Sheldon Rample. Yeah, it is Sheldon Rample. There you so go. A pair of Sheldons. It. The Big Bang Theory down in uh, down in Abbotsford. A bunch of Sheldons crushing it. Um, they uh, yeah. So Sheldon Drees and Sheldon Rample have been their best players, and it kind of matters like it, a lot. Like you can't kind of call up guys around them. Like Bailey had six six points in his first five games with the Canucks. Yeah, the Abbotsford Canucks comes up. Um, you know, you, you kind of like it's hard. Phil D. Giuseppe has five points in nine games. It's hard to call him up as good as he looked in camp, right? As much NHL experience as he's, as he's had, um, the, despite the fact that he scored at like a third line rate over the course of his NHL career at five on five, it's hard to go around um, the Sheldons, <laughs> the Big Bang Theory duo, yeah, to uh, call up a guy around them, whether it's Lockwood who hasn't played a ton yet because of injury, or a guy like D. Giuseppe. Uh, that's going to do it for the Canucks Hour. Thanks for listening. Thanks for texting in. Make sure you check out, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts as well. We will be back tomorrow, 11 a.m., right here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.